Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Today, in the second hour of today's program, we're going to talk with Lindsay Kernetta. She is with the Heritage Action. She's their press secretary. We're going to talk about the call to oppose the debt ceiling suspension. The Senate is voting on cloture today if they haven't already done so. That's coming up. In the second hour, we'll also talk with Dr. Gregory Jans, uh, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. The book is published by Fleming Ravel. It's also featured at Focus on the Family and a great volume to help those of us who are concerned um, to help those about whom we're concerned. So that's coming up in the second hour of today's program as well. Well, only one Republican lawmaker showed up for a scheduled floor session at the Oregon House of Representatives on Saturday as the minority party denied a quorum to prevent the passage of the new state legislative and congressional district maps. Well, the boycott came after a new congressional map was proposed on Saturday morning that wasn't as heavily slanted toward Democrats as the previous version, but could still result in a five to one Democratic congressional delegation. Well, the legislature was scheduled to meet on Saturday morning to consider this proposed map or maps rather but the floor session was repeatedly delayed as discussions continued behind the scenes and of course it was pushed to saturday because there was covid exposure well the house convened at about 1 p.m but didn't um, achieve the two-thirds quorum it needed to perform any business democrats still waiting on the house floor the session was adjourned at five well the house is scheduled to reconvene or was at 9 a.m this morning if there is not a quorum by 9.30, they said, we will be finished and the session will be over. House Speaker Tina Kotek uh, said, I look forward to seeing all of our members here and can make it on um, on Monday morning to be part of the work of this special session. Well, Monday, September 27th is the legislature's deadline to approve and submit new state legislative and district maps to the courts. Well, Oregon's redistricting process is getting national attention as it's one of the states adding a U.S. House seat due to population growth determined by the latest U.S. Census data. Well, if the legislature fails to pass the finalized maps that receive uh, Governor Kate Brown's signature by its court-appointed deadline, the job of drafting the state legislative map would go to the Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, who's also a Democrat. Well, a five-judge panel created by the Oregon Supreme Court would handle congressional maps. So we'll see what's happened. I haven't followed what uh, what went on uh, today. As I mentioned, they were scheduled to meet at 9.30 this morning. And whatever happened is now history. Well, the Oregon Employment Department announced that a new temporary unemployment benefit availability rule will take effect next week. It's intended to clarify eligible requirements for workers who must work around child care responsibilities and will likely result in fewer workers being disqualified because of the operation of the eligibility requirements. Well, under the new rule, workers uh, have to be available for suitable work for at least 40 hours a week and one shift per day if the work is shift-based. Well, that sort of slipped in there, but I did want to mention that uh, Portland still gets all of the vote power in the new redistricting maps that was put together last uh, Saturday and reconsidered this morning. The uh, Compromise Plan B redistricting map provided by the House Democrats still retain major controversies and bias, as reported in the media. Mark Fryson, OregonLive.com, cited a redistricting analysis on the latest proposal, which shows continued Democrat dominance. 
the latest uh, maps shift CD5, which is a name for all of this, across the Cascades, grabbing bend. But the original uh, proposed uh, design, kind of a pizza design, if you will, with districts creeping out of Portland, continue the gerrymandered uh, format to favor one party or the other. No respect for natural boundaries, Cascade Mountains, for example, linked communities of interest or other ties, except voter registration and with the consequence of uh, giving Portland overrepresentation and underrepresenting rural Oregon. So nothing new there. This will only further Oregon's rural-urban split. So that's what you can expect if the legislature has its say uh, or the uh, Secretary of State or the courts. We'll see where it ends up at this point. Well, Senate Bill 554 takes effect Saturday, September 25th, as the 91st day after the session's adjournment signed into law by Oregon Governor Kate Brown, referring to the Oregon Gun Safety Bill that took effect on Saturday. The law allows the state capitol, airports, schools and universities to prohibit firearms and require firearms to be securely stored when not in use to avoid unintentional shootings and gun suicides. Now, part of the concern is when you make the public announcement, no guns at the capitol, airports, schools and universities. Some see that as an invitation. Well, the original measure authorities authorizes city, county, metropolitan service districts, ports operating commercial airports, school district, college or university to adopt ordinance or policy limiting or precluding affirmative defense for possession of firearms in public buildings by concealed handgun licenses. End quote. That was a mouthful. Well, it modifies the definition of public building for the purposes of crime of possession of a weapon in a public building to include certain airport areas, buildings owned or controlled by public bodies and real property owned by college and universities. Uh, gun safety advocates such as um, every town highlight that the Senate Bill 554, as it was before passed and signed into law, will require that firearms be securely stored and locked when not in use. Research shows secure storage legislation can prevent unintentional shootings and gun suicides. Right now, over 80 percent of gun deaths are gun suicides in Oregon. September marks Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And in fact, we'll be talking in the second hour of today's program with Dr. Gregory Jans, whose latest book is simply titled So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Well, as downtown Portland struggles to rebound from pandemic downtown, um, protest fallout, a rise in homelessness, city leaders are set to vote on a contested security and sanitation contract. Last week, city council voted to uh, postpone the vote to renew a contract with nonprofit downtown Portland Clean and Safe. Well, the city has uh, contracted with the group for years using a mix of taxes and fees from property owners. The contract is up, so now commissioners are set to vote on Wednesday over whether to renew it for $25 million over the next five years. The city took testimony from invited supporters and heard public comment from dissenting groups. Critics said contracted private security officers, sometimes armed, have had a history of harassing the homeless community, breaking the law and not being subject to accountability measures. Um, one uh, senior policy associate for the ACLU of Oregon argued the program doesn't serve its intended purpose. Well, after months of public input, the city did make changes to the contract that it had that has now expired. The current proposal would create more city oversight of clean and safe privacy. Um, hired security personnel would be subject to reviews and audits and be required to provide identification if people want to make complaints. More resources would be added to serve the homeless population and address mental health 
concerns. So that vote is expected on Wednesday. Clean and Safe Board Chair Cindy uh, Lorilla emphasized a commitment to serving Portland, saying no sector can do it alone. It's going to take all of us to restore downtown to its former beauty and vitality. We're grateful for their service. A representative for Travel Portland said the city of Portland faces increased challenges. Clean and Safety Director of Operations Mark Wells testified, and we are at a critical point in time. However, City Commissioner Joe uh, Joanne Hardesty argued contract change do not adequately address community concern. So Wednesday, we'll tell the tale. Roughly 60 people a year found employment through this program, and they're able to start or restart their journey toward independence and self-employment, according to others. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's a high-stakes week on Capitol Hill, no doubt about it. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced Sunday night that debate on the Senate-passed bipartisan infrastructure bill will start today, right on time, to fulfill the promise made to centrists last month. The vote on the $550 billion in new infrastructure spending is slated for Thursday, right as the authorization for key surface uh, transportation programs is set to expire. Well, House leaders are also trying to make enough progress on the sweeping reconciliation package so that progressives don't revolt and tank the infrastructure bill uh, and to appease centrists in the Senate. It is quite a balancing act in Washington. The next few days will be a time of intensity. Nancy Pelosi wrote to House Democrats this weekend. The caucus will meet at 5.30 p.m. Monday, and Pelosi wants the members who've drawn lines in the sand about the Democratic agenda, who haven't shown their faces at caucus meetings lately, to be there. I urge the full, the fullest participation of members and hope that as many of us uh, as can will be there in person. Well, Pelosi reiterated her well-established legislative strategy on ABC over the weekend. I've never, um, I'm never bringing a bill to the floor that doesn't have the vote. She said more details on how she is uh, approaching this week from uh, other sources as the week moves forward. So a rather interesting week ahead in Washington. Well, a crisis management playbook. Uh, Federal Reserve officials created years ago could guide their response to uh, this fall if the federal government can't pay all of its bills because of a political standoff over raising the federal debt ceiling or debt limit, I should say. Well, we're going to talk with uh, Heritage Action Press Secretary in the five o'clock hour about just that. But they created years ago this guide. Um, their response this fall if the federal government can't pay its uh, its bills because of the political standoff. Well, the uh, options include the Fed uh, buying Treasury se- uh, securities in default on the open market and selling Treasuries owned by the Fed to, to counteract potentially severe strains of financial markets. According to the strat- uh, transcript of an October 2013 conference call, they anticipated this sort of thing happening at some point in the future. Among the officials who said those steps shouldn't be ruled out were... Um, Jerome Powell, the central bank's current chairman, who was uh, then a Fed governor, and Janet Yellen, the current Treasury secretary, who was then Fed vice chairwoman. Well, Powell called some measures loathsome and others call them repugnant or beyond the pale for two main reasons. First, they would pierce the Fed's institutional uh, preference to avoid directly financing the government, often referred to as its independence from fiscal policy. And second, uh, Fed officials worried if such contingency plans become public, elected officials might feel less urgency to raise the debt limit. Well, these are decisions you really, really don't ever want to have to make, Powell said on that call. The institutional risk would be huge. The economics of it are 
right, but you'd be stepping into this difficult political world and looking like you were making the problem go away, Yellen said. I would be eager to do them, but I wouldn't uh, say never. Well, nearly $79 billion for the IRS, $12 billion for electric cars, $3 billion for tree equity, tree equity, $1 billion to turn government facilities into high-performance green buildings and new funding for gender identity issues and bias training. Uh, it's now revealed that these and other controversial spending items are in the Democrats' multi-trillion dollar reconciliation package following the House Budget Committee's release and approval of the full draft legislation on Saturday. Well, among the most contentious uh, provisions, the bill gives a substantial funding boost to the Internal Revenue Service, which stands to gain an additional $78.94 billion over the next 10 years. The money would help the IRS strengthen tax enforcement activities, expand audits, and modernize its technology. An additional $410 million would go to IRS oversight. Well, Democrats also are putting equity at the center of the bill. The Agriculture Committee has earmarked $3 billion for a tree planting program with a priority for projects that increase tree equity. The legislation, and is that equity for the trees or equity for the people who enjoy the trees that are planted? Anyway, the legislation uh, dishes out another $4 billion for neighborhood access and equity grants. Meanwhile, its electric vehicle charging uh, equity program comes with a $1 trillion price tag. The bill generally doesn't elaborate on the meaning of equity in this uh, context, though American forests define tree equity, for example, as a tree planting program that identifies the cities that can gain the most significant health, economic, and climate benefits by increasing tree canopy in places of high need, end quote. I'll leave you to interpret that. The legislation would add billions of dollars in climate change funding, starting with the uh, Civilian Climate Corps, which would get at least $7.5 billion across multiple committee budgets. The organization, which the president has uh, placed at the top of his climate wish list, would employ thousands of young people to carry out conservation and climate change-related projects on public land, maybe planting those trees for equity's sake, perhaps. Well, President Biden's team is being uh, ripped as economically illiterate for the claim that um, Build Back Better costs zero dollars. The president repeated that again today. Well, and analysts, rather, and lawmakers call the president out for tweeting that his Build Back Better plan costs zero dollars, with even one supporter calling it a false claim. Republicans have ripped Build Back Better, a $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, which, according to the Congressional Budget Office, is closer to 5 or $6 billion over the, the first 10 years. That would have to be repeated, and my guess is a little higher 10 years after that. So they've ripped the Build Back Better as a massive uh, bill that ultimately provides benefits to wealthy liberal elites at the expense of working class families. Moderate Democrats like Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchins and uh, Representative Stephanie Murphy have also raised concerns about the reconciliation package. The latter noting the bill lacks cost analysis by the Congressional Budget Office. I don't think we can afford everything, Murphy said. Unless something changes, I have no choice but to vote no on every subtitle in the bill and on final passage, end quote. Well, in the midst of the uh, infighting within the Democrat Party, President Biden argued his social spending bill is an investment in working America and will cost nothing. Now, imagine that it would cost nothing. My Build Back Better agenda costs zero dollars, the president said. 
uh, his account uh, tweeted on Saturday, and he said it today, instead of wasting money on tax breaks, loopholes, and tax evasion for big corporations and the wealthy, we can make a once-in-a-generation investment in working America, and it adds zero dollars to the national debt. Well, the sad part is that's not true. Even some who support his agenda questioned his recent message. The president and his communications office were called liars, arguing that despite his pledge, the president's agenda will be costly and a burden on the middle class. I have to admit, I thought this was from a parody account when I first read it. That's a quote from Representative Claudia Tenney from New York. Adding in a follow-up tweet, it was disturbing to see it was actually from our president. He thinks he can spend an unprecedented $3.5 trillion and not add a penny to the debt. This is who is in charge. Scary. Well, once again, Congress is having a brawl over raising the debt ceiling. We'll talk more about that in the second hour of the program. But it limits how much money the Treasury Department is allowed to borrow to pay the government's bills. Well, these... um, Debates, if you will, are a Washington tradition and all the customary rituals are being observed. There is, to begin with, the hysterical doom saying about the horrors that awaits us if the debt ceiling isn't raised. Financial Armageddon, irreparable harm, a cascading catastrophe. There are the furious accusations of partisan bad faith as Democrats blast Republicans, shameless and cynical hard line against hiking the debt limit, while Republicans point out the Democrats control Congress and the White House and can raise the limit on their own. There is a a cascade, um, or rather a charade, if you will, by which both sides pretend that they don't know how this standoff is virtually certain to end. Democrats will offer Republicans some modest concessions and the increase will be passed with GOP support. But above all, there is the utter irresponsibility of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who admit all the howling about the dire threat facing the United States if the government can't meet its financial obligations have done nothing to slow the soaring rise of the national debt. Well, the Treasury's legal borrowing authority, which was temporarily suspended for two years in 2019, was reinstated on the 1st of August uh, at that uh, uh, the current level of twenty eight point five trillion dollars. That is far and away the greatest amount of money the government has ever owed, uh, whether in absolute dollars in dollar adjusted for inflation or most important as the percentage of gross domestic product. That is as a share of the nation's annual economic output. Well, during wars and other times of severe crisis, federal spending and borrowing understandably rise. Thus, the national debt spiked during World War II and the immediate post-war recession, reaching 119 percent of GDP in 1946. Well, then, as the emergency receded, the government's debt was dramatically reduced. and By the early 1980s, the national debt amounted to no more than 31 percent of the size of the U.S. economy. Well, the national debt today, however, clocks in. 125% of GDP. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with Lindsay Crunetta. She's the Heritage Action Press Secretary. We'll talk about the call to oppose the debt ceiling suspension as the Senate is set to vote for cloture today. More on that at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Then we'll talk with Dr. Gregory Jans. He is the author of So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. The book just recently released. We've been talking about the... uh, Uh, The U.S. debt, the national debt today, clocks in at about 125 percent of GDP. 
Uh, During World War II, it was 119, not to cover the staggering costs of the World War, but to pay for metastasizing entitlement programs that now consume two-thirds of the federal budget. Yet Congress, far from mobilizing to pay down that debt, is busily adding to it. Well, just days after hitting the new debt ceiling, the Senate, by a large bipartisan majority, passed a $1 trillion infrastructure bill, at least one quarter of which uh, will have to be financed through new borrowing, notwithstanding the supposedly looming financial Armageddon of the debt crisis. In other words, Democrats and Republicans joined in a vote that will worsen that crisis. Well, meanwhile, even as Democrat leaders and their allies excoriate the GOP, uh, GOP rather, for refusing to raise the debt limit, they're working to finalize a massive $3.5 trillion spending package, which the Congressional Budget Office says is closer to 5 or $6 trillion. Uh, that will saddle the government, which really means American taxpayers and the U.S. economy with even more indebtedness. Well, anyone who follows politics knows that Washington is frequently awash in hypocrisy. It's nothing new. But when it comes to uh, pointing the finger of blame during debt ceiling battles, the duplicity reaches flood levels. In fact, Jeff Jacoby, writing on the subject, had this to say. Uh, as president, uh, presidential candidate, Barack Obama blasted George W. Bush for his irresponsible and unpatriotic record of driving up our national debt from $5 trillion to over $9 trillion. When Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, he vowed to cut the national debt very quickly, unlike Obama, who he said truly uh, doesn't have a clue. Well, last month, President Biden took to the bully pulpit to blame the top-heavy debt uh, load on his predecessor, whose unpaid tax cuts and other spending added trillions to the national debt. In fact, every recent president has claimed to be a paragon of fiscal responsibility who was clear eyed about the dangers posed by a sky uh, a sky high national debt. And every one of them signed spending measures, mostly passed by bipartisan backing, that sent debt streaking to even more stratospheric levels. Well, under President Bush, the total owed by the federal government grew by $4.9 trillion. Under Obama, by $9.3 trillion. Under Trump, by $7.8 trillion. Biden has been president for only eight months, but the national debt is already $700 billion greater than if, than it was on inauguration day. Well, there's been no end to dire talk about the terrible scenarios that would result from the United States defaulting on its debt to bondholders, but there is zero danger of that happening. As Moody's, the credit rating agency, explaining during a previous debt ceiling fight, said the government would continue to pay interest and principal on its debts, even in the event that the debt limit is not raised, leaving its credit worthiness intact. Well, maxing out your credit card doesn't mean you're a deadbeat. It means you have to pay down some of the uh, principal before you can make new charges and until they can only spend what you earn. Well, if the debt ceiling isn't hiked, holders of a U.S. Treasury bond aren't going to be stiffed. They'll be fine. Washington this year is uh, projected to raise $3.8 trillion in taxes and tariffs. That is 10 times the roughly $380 billion needed to service the current debt. Well, America can certainly cover its interest payments to lenders with uh, what it collects in taxes, but interest is only one narrow slice of federal outlays. What Washington can't cover is the entirety of the $6.8 trillion that the federal government is planning to spend this year. Everything from Medicare to government salaries to medical uh, research to highway funding to veterans benefits. As things stand now, roughly $3 trillion, more than 40 cents of every dollar the government spends each year is borrowed. Nearly 40 
cents of every dollar. Well, those uh, borrowed dollars keep go, uh, keep uh, getting added to the debt, which now approaches $30 trillion. Not even the United States can indefinitely keep this up. Your children and grandchildren will ultimately have to pay, and not just in terms of dollars and cents, but in terms of freedom. What should truly alarm Americans isn't the prospect that Congress might not push the debt ceiling higher. It's the level of spending and consequently the level of borrowing that Congress won't stop pushing higher. Reigning in the government runaway outlays is the nation's most urgent financial priority. But you wouldn't know it. The cost of not doing so is uh, is strangling growth ever higher taxes, and the loss of wealth and opportunity for a generation of Americans. Alas, only diehard budget hawks seem to worry about such things more than they uh, worry about scoring partisan points, and Americans no longer send uh, many budget hawks to Congress. We're governed by two reckless spending parties, which play politics as the nation slowly drowns in red ink. And it will ultimately have to be paid by future generations. Trust me, they will not thank you, thank us for that. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her congressional allies, as well as the media, have characterized the Women's Health Protection Act as simply codifying Roe versus Wade. That is a gross understatement. That's an egregious mischaracterization that understates just how radical the proposal actually is. Well, the act goes far beyond the already permissive regime permitted under America's existing abortion jurisprudence. In response to pro-life policy victories like that of Texas, the Heartbeat Act, and an upcoming Supreme Court case asking the justices to provide a constitutional course correction to America's arbitrary and unworkable abortion jurisprudence, pro-abortion lawmakers in Congress are advancing a deceptively named piece of legislation called the Women's Health Protection Act. The radical, far-reaching proposal would uh, entrench unfettered access to abortion in federal law. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her congressional allies, as well as the media, have characterized the uh, Protection Act as simply codifying Roe versus Wade. Again, it's an egregious mischaracterization. It understates just how radical this thing really is. Well, the act goes far beyond the already permissive regime permitted under America's existing abortion jurisprudence. And in fact, if enacted, the Women's Health Protection Act would endanger essentially all state-level abortion restrictions, existing state and federal conscience protection laws, and various provisions limiting taxpayer funding for abortions. Congress should reject this radical proposal. We'll see what happens. Well, the Women's Health Protection Act would expressly prohibit existing laws that regulate abortion and the abortion industry. The bill bans informed consent requirements, reflection periods, and provisions that give women the opportunity to view an image of their child in utero or listen to a child's heartbeat. That might, in fact, convince her that she is carrying a living child in utero. Well, the proposed federal policy would also preempt policies like the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which currently protects women and their unborn children in more than a dozen states, from inhumane late-term abortions performed after 20 weeks. Well, the scientific evidence suggests that a baby can feel excruciating pain during an abortion procedure performed after 20 weeks. But they don't care. 
The bill ignores pro-life policy consensus. The act would imperil policies like the Hyde Amendment, which prevents taxpayer dollars from paying for elective abortions in federal programs like Medicaid. Over the past four decades, the Hyde Amendment has served more than 2.4, rather saved more than 2.4 million lives. It would also jeopardize longstanding policies that protect conscience and religious freedom, ignoring America's proud tradition of respecting individuals and entities' rights to not participate in abortion. Well, these pro-life policies enjoy broad support across the political spectrum. A majority of Americans oppose using taxpayer dollars to fund elective abortions, including 65 percent of independents, 31 percent of Democrats. According to a January Marist poll commissioned by the Catholic organization Knights of Columbus. Similarly, a majority of Americans support conscience rights for individuals and entities that object to abortion. Well, states have enacted more than 500 life-protecting policies in the last decade. Congress would do well to remember that such policies are in place precisely because elected representatives did what their constituents asked them to do, protect unborn human lives and women's health and safety. Well, Americans broadly support policies Uh, that the sweeping Women's Health Protection Act would disallow. And rather than prohibit pro-life policies where they exist, Congress should pursue policies that protect innocent unborn human lives, although that's not likely, including those not yet born. And society should support women who face challenges and unplanned pregnancies. Again, this passed in the House, but has yet to make its way to the Senate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from a Heritage Action press secretary on the call to uh, oppose the debt ceiling suspension. And uh, we'll talk with Dr. Gregory Jantz, his uh, latest book, So Much to Live For, a book about um, uh, suicide prevention during this month, September Suicide Prevention Month. Well, a former FedEx employee is out of a job after posting a profanity-laced rant on TikTok in which he vowed never to deliver packages to the homes of people who supported the president, the vice president, and Black Lives Matter. Well, the employee identified as, well, we don't need to know his name. He posted the video on TikTok in the middle of the month. In the video, he appears to be seated in a delivery truck. What's up, TikTok? And he went on from there. Well, comments on the video predicted his uh, imminent firing. It remains unclear whether he was uh, fired or quit his job. Multiple reports say he was fired. He himself said in TikTok comments um, that he quit. FedEx only said that he's no longer with the company. We are appalled by the behavior depicted in this video, which does not reflect the views of FedEx. A representative said in a statement, this individual is no longer providing service on behalf of the company. You know, come on, people. Whatever happened to tolerating one another? Well, Trump turned up the uh, heat and attacks on the top Georgia Republicans touting pro-Trump candidates as the election there is drawing near. A Washington Post columnist is being savaged for downplaying the $3.5 trillion bill and saying, hey, it's already paid for. Petco Park deaths appear to be suspicious. Police say a a horrific incident at the park over the weekend was being described by police as suspicious as the San Diego Padres played their final game at the stadium on Sunday. A woman and a child fell to their deaths on Saturday, moments before the Padres were about to play the Atlanta Braves. San Diego police said an investigation was ongoing into their deaths, but noted that it appeared to be suspicious. A 40-year-old woman and 2-year-old boy fell from the third level of the ballpark and were pronounced dead shortly after 4 p.m. Brown, um, I should say the... um, 
uh, Lieutenant Andra Brown uh, said that uh, police are still speaking with the father of the child. He said he was not married to the woman who died, according to CBS 8. Well, police kept the area shut down Sunday as they continued to investigate. The Fed is preparing for a doomsday situation as the standoff continues in Congress. And multimillionaire Biden um, use of S corporations draws some scrutiny by Republicans who see hypocrisy. The World Health Organization is seeking to revive the stalled inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 with a new team. And Bitcoin miners are eyeing nuclear power as environmental criticism mounts. China is wielding a new legal weapon to fight claims by the U.S. of intellectual property theft. Meanwhile, a federal judge has approved the unconditional release of John Hinckley Jr., the man who tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan outside a Washington, D.C. hotel back in 1981. Hinckley, now 66, he's been living outside a mental health facility for several years under court-imposed restrictions, including the oversight of his medical care and tracking of his computer passwords. The new agreement will result in his full release from supervision in June of 2022. The Justice Department agreed to a settlement, but will monitor Hinckley for nine months to ensure he remains mental, uh, mentally stable as he will be living on his own for the first time in about 40 years and because one of his primary doctors is set to retire and dissolve Hinckley's therapy group. The department said it would file a motion with the court before June if it uh, had new concerns about Hinckley. Well, cargo is piling up as California ports jostle over how to resolve delays. And House Democrats passed an extreme abortion bill. We've talked about it. The National Review editorial board says House Democrats united behind legislation that could almost all agree upon, enshrining in federal law a virtually unlimited right to kill a baby through all nine months of pregnancy. If all members had voted, it would have taken only four Democratic dissenters to kill this radical abortion bill, but just one voted against it. H.R. 3755, the deceitfully named Women's Health Protection Act, would invalidate nearly all state laws limiting and regulating abortion. New York City is preparing to fire thousands of health care workers over vaccination demands. The New York Times falsely claims if defying the order, they are resisting a step that public health experts say is critical to save lives and end the pandemic. The city is considering using the National Guard to cover the massive shortage. An NBC News senior political reporter says Biden needs to spend big to get Democrats back on board. Jonathan Allen says it's not just that the honeymoon is over. The marriage between Biden and the public is on the rocks. Many Democrats believe his best chance to salvage it, maybe his last shot before the specter of midterm elections paralyzes Congress, is to enact as much as possible of his two-part $4 trillion plan to bolster infrastructure and expand the nation's social safety net. The NBA is worried as 10 percent of players are refusing the vaccine and they won't be able to play in certain cities. A Native American tribe is nearing a win in their battle with environmentalists to hunt gray whales, which they've been banned from since 1999 as the gray whale population has dwindled. It's fascinating battle between the rights of Native Americans versus the all-powerful environmentalists. The Taliban is cozying up to China and Uyghurs in Afghanistan fear they will be deported to China. A social, um, or rather a school district, is forcing a middle school teacher to remove a pro-police flag from her classroom wall. But the BLM and LGBT messages are allowed at the uh, Marysville Middle School in Michigan. The middle school teacher in Marysville Middle School posted a thin blue line flag in her classroom. It was meant to support the police. But according to documents obtained by the Jason Rance Show, 
KTTH. The district's human resources said the flag is a political symbol that could elicit a disruption in the classroom. She was ordered to take it down. But of course, the BLM and LGBTQ flag, not so much. A proposal uh, would give Colombians time off to mourn the death of pets. How long until that comes to a big city near you? My guess is not long. A Wisconsin pastor is fasting until Congress passes a climate bill. The Reverend Jonathan Barker, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church, stopped eating on Saturday and said he will continue to protest until Congress passes a climate bill. Reminds me of the man um, in the book of Acts who said they would not eat until Paul was dead. He didn't die. Just saying. President Biden slammed horse-mounted agents who were overwhelmed because of his policies. Border agents are dumbfounded by the president's promise to fry them, saying he just started a war with the Border Patrol. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it's not constructive for the president to visit the southern border. He has never been. Well, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary says we probably released around 12,000 Haitians, although it may be significantly more. He's not really... Sure. Now, were you just taking your sweater off, Clark? Okay. Want to mistake that as a signal. Well, President Biden defends his social agenda bill, wrongly claiming the cost will be zero. And Nancy Pelosi set a Thursday vote on infrastructure, eyeing a smaller social spending bill. House Democrats passed a bill to end nearly all restrictions on abortion. And AOC apologized for present her present vote on Israel's Iron Dome explaining her crocodile tears. Chris Cuomo has been accused of sexually harassing his former boss at a 2005 party. Observers wonder if it um, runs in the family. Under U.S. sanctions, Iran and Venezuela struck an oil export deal. And the United States and Pakistan are facing each other again on Afghanistan threats. Turkey's president is defiant about acquiring a Russian missile defense system, despite the potential risk for the U.S. The committee chairman disbanded the panel investigating COVID-19's origins, saying it's linked to a nonprofit that worked with a Chinese lab, raises biased concerns. And the World Health Organization is relaunching its probe into the pandemic's origins. China is welcoming Huawei's executive home. And Social Democrats narrowly beat Angela Merkel's block in the German vote. A new video of the January 6th Uh, event depicts disorder and disrespect, not violent insurrection. The FBI narrative about the insurrection is apparently imploding. Uh, Police uh, academies, rather, are facing a recruiting drought after a year of relentless cop demonization. And Delta wants airlines to share no-fly lists to keep bad passengers out of the skies altogether. And Pelosi's abortion-for-all bill is more radical than Roe. Well, on this day in history, 1779, John Adams is named by Congress to negotiate the Revolutionary War's peace terms with Britain. 1854, the first great disaster involving an Atlantic Ocean passenger vessel occurs when a steamship, SS Arctic, sinks off Newfoundland. Of the more than 400 people on board, only 86 survive. 1964, the government publicly releases the report of the Warren Commission, which concludes that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone in assassinating President John F. Kennedy. 1979, Congress gives its final approval to forming a U.S. Department of Education. 1991, President George Herbert Walker Bush announces in a nationally broadcast address that he is eliminating all U.S. battlefield nuclear weapons and calls on the Soviet Union to match that gesture. 1991, the Senate Judiciary Committee deadlocks seven to seven on the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
1994. More than 350 Republican congressional candidates gather on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to sign the Contract with America, a 10-point platform that pledged to enact if voters send a GOP majority to the House. And they did. 2014, President Barack Obama, in an address to the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, says a widespread mistrust of law enforcement that was exposed by the fatal police shooting of an unarmed black man in Ferguson, Missouri, exists in too many other communities and is having a corrosive effect on the nation, particularly its children. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, during a day-long hearing by the Senate Judiciary Committee, Christine Blasey Ford says she is 100 percent certain that she was sexually assaulted by Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh when they were teenagers. Kavanaugh then tells senators that he is 100 percent certain he had done no such thing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Lindsay Cronutta, when we come back. She's with the Heritage Foundation's, uh, I should say, Heritage Action. We'll talk about the um, debt ceiling and whether or not it should be suspended. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Gregory Jans. He's the author of So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Given the recent statistics, it's a subject we need to be thinking about. Well, Heritage Action has been calling on Republicans to oppose suspending the debt limit as the Senate was scheduled to vote for cloture today to consider a continuing resolution, which also includes provisions that would suspend the debt ceiling. Well, instead of making meaningful reforms to spending, like prohibiting further suspensions or installing revenue caps, well, the left is working to suspend the debt limit once again. Well, here to talk with us about that is Lindsay Kernute. She is the uh, uh, press secretary for Heritage Action on this call to oppose the debt ceiling suspension as the Senate is prepared to uh, to take it up. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so so much for having me. Well, this is an important subject. It's not the first time Congress has considered uh, doing away with, at least temporarily, I guess the word is suspending the debt limit. Uh, Talk a little bit about what that means and why um, Heritage Action, and I would certainly agree, is urging Republicans to oppose suspending the debt limit. Yeah, so they're um, voting on that tonight in the Senate, like you mentioned. It will fail. But what this this debt ceiling is for, it's really to offset the cost of the Democrats' $3.5 trillion reconciliation plan. So that's one of their that budget bill that they attached to the infrastructure bill to really try to make this a must-pass piece of legislation. But what's in this reconciliation bill is really just alarming. I mean, if if the price tag wasn't enough, $3.5 trillion, I, I say again, it's just astronomical amount of money. They have really just a lot of leftist priorities packed into this bill. Um, I mean, it's something that we're really standing against and we're urging all members of Congress to vote against this. We we really only expect, of course, the Republicans to do so, but we're really trying to narrow it down to some moderate Republicans who may vote for this bill, may vote for infrastructure, excuse me, but what we're saying is a vote for this infrastructure bill is a vote for this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Which, according, I believe, to the Congressional uh, Budget Office, is a little bit closer to five to six uh, rather than three point five. So that's an underestimation. Your thoughts on the president? This is maybe a little off subject, but the president's um, uh, insistence earlier suggesting that uh, this is already paid for. We're not talking about, uh, you know, it's already paid for. I, I can't make that math add up. Your thoughts? 
<laughs> well, that's certainly not off topic. That's that's really what we're trying to hammer down right now. There's no math possible to really make that make sense. This bill is not paid for. He says this is a zero price tag bill, and frankly, that's a lie. That's a lie to the American people. Um, he's he's had a lot of lies, honestly, in his presidency so far. One about getting all Americans out of Afghanistan. Two that the borders couldn't secure, and three that this 3.5 bill is to really impact America. It's already paid for. This bill is being paid for by taxpayers like you and I. It's not being paid for just the rich, and it's not being paid we already have. We have to suspend the debt limit and and do this to make this bill make sense. That's what this debt ceiling bill is for. It's going to put us into at least $1.1 trillion worth of debt, possibly more. But this is something that Americans are really concerned about. We, Heritage Action, recently did some polling asking Americans um, what they thought about the debt ceiling or the national debt and whatnot, and if it's emergency. And 71% of respondents, including 83% of Republicans, 70% of independents, say that they consider this national debt crisis to be an emergency. It's at $2.8 trillion right now. It's out of control. We can't add more money to this debt. And this, this $3.5 trillion bill is just a disaster. Well, I think it's important to put it into perspective because certainly it's it's going to have an impact in the short in the long term, but in the short term mm-hmm. as well. Why not have you know uh, a large debt? Uh, can you put into perspective how that impacts uh, business, how that impacts uh, taxes in the future? Which you know we're we're being told only the really rich people are going to pay. This has implications for this and future generations. Definitely, and that future generations is really just the one I feel most guilty about. It's something that we're doing. We're saddling children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren with this that the government doesn't want to deal with right now. They'll get to it when they feel like it. But one day this is really going to have a huge impact on Americans, if it hasn't already. And you mentioned the short-term issues. Um, Some other ways that they're trying to pay for this bill is through raising taxes. I mean, Biden promised not to raise taxes on anyone over that's making over $400,000. But Unfortunately, there's another lie. If they, he does have taxes in this bill that will go towards middle class Americans. They've got they're doubling the tobacco tax, just as an example, and then they're increasing national or excuse me, natural gas taxes, which of course are going to be paid for people at the pump. I mean, if if the business taxes aren't enough, those will get passed down to consumers, and and they basically are saying right now the exact opposite of what I am saying. They are saying that there will be no new taxes, but there will be. And and it's sad to see the Biden administration really lie time and time after again about what this bill is, who's paying for it, and, and what's going on here. Because like I said before, it's taxpayers like you and me who are going to be feeling the effects here. Yeah, absolutely. One of the points that you make at Heritage Action is that simply suspending the debt limit without significant policy reforms would only serve to finance trillions in new federal spending. So responsible reforms should be a part of this equation. Is there any uh, sign that that's being considered or might be considered? Or uh, I, Certainly it should be, but any, any signs that that's a possibility? You know, right now we're at, excuse me, the Democrats are here and they will do whatever they can to make sure that this liberal policy agenda of theirs, this $3.5 trillion bill gets passed. But it is hopeful to see um, two senators on the Democratic side, um, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, both indicated that they do not want this insane new spending. So thankfully, they there's some, excuse me, some Democrats who are out there that understand this is absolutely astronomical and isn't okay. But on the other hand, there's a 
huge faction of leftists and progressives on the House side that say this isn't enough. Three point five trillion is just a starting point. So Democrats are really across across the scale on this. They're they're really in disarray at this moment, really trying to make this happen and push this through. So I really think right now Republicans are kind of letting this unfold and they're trying to call attention to how insane this is, how crazy it is. But it's it's really best just to let the Democratic Party to really just deal with this and and make sure that hopefully make sure that it's it's not voted for because the way that they're the excuse me the the way that they're going down is is really is really kind of in disarray right now. Yeah, absolutely. Again, citing the report from Heritage Action, the Congressional Budget Office projects that in just one generation, net interest costs will consume over 6.7 percent of the economy. That's slightly more than the annual production value of all agriculture, all forestry, fishing, mining, oil extraction and construction industries in the United States. Uh, How likely do you think it is that this is going to uh, succeed um, even if Republicans, minus some of the more moderate Republicans, uh, stand against it. Is this going to happen? Well, they don't need us in the House. That's what it is. They have enough votes to pass this yeah. along on their own. So um, the Democratic Party, something that they're really good at is sticking together. And Pelosi's great at whipping her members into the right vote. So I see this passing the House and I see it having some trouble in the Senate. But Joe Biden actually just recently said, despite Manchin saying he doesn't want this $3.5 million, trillion dollar bill, excuse me, he said, Joe, speaking about Joe Manchin, he's always on our side. We get him to our side anyway. So the Biden administration thinks they're going to be able to get Manchin in on this. And if it continues down this path, we're going to see that bill pass through, which is scary to say. But that's why Heritage Action, we are a grassroots conservative organization. We have nearly 2 million activists across the U.S. We are telling all of our activists right now, call your members of Congress, especially those in West Virginia and Arizona. Make sure they know that they do not want this new spending. This this debt ceiling, um, what we were talking about earlier, that's not going to pay for the money that's being spent now. That's what that reconciliation package is. So we're letting all of our activists know to, to call their members. And I encourage everyone that's listening right now to, to find their numbers as well and give them a call and let them have a piece of your mind because because they've got to really wake up right now and understand what an astronomical amount of money three point five trillion dollars is. Yeah, absolutely, Lindsay. Thank you so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Again, uh, Lindsay Kernut is uh, with the Heritage Action. She's their press secretary on the call to oppose the debt ceiling suspension as the Senate votes on cloture. Later today, or I guess it's later there now. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, and its rates increased by 33 percent between 1999 and 2019. That's pre-pandemic. Yet that statistic doesn't include the number of Americans who thought about or attempted suicide. And according to Mental Health America, more than 10.3 million U.S. adults have had serious suicidal thoughts. 
So many people are silently hurting. Well, today we're going to talk with um, one of my favorite authors, Dr. Gregory Jansen. His latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Dr. Jansen, uh, Jans rather, is a popular speaker and an award-winning author of many books, including Healing the Scars of Emotional Abuse, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, and overcoming anxiety, worry, and fear. He is the founder of the Center, A Place of Hope, which is a strategic title that really reflects um, the heart of the work that he does in the state of Washington. Again, he joins us today to talk about his book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope for Someone Considering Suicide. Dr. Jans, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's just plain a tough topic to talk about, but it is one, one we need to address. Well, you're absolutely right, and I take I appreciate the fact that you've taken time in your professional capacity to provide a resource for those of us who care about others who struggle, and those who are struggling can also benefit from your writing. Tell us a bit about this new project, So Much to Live For, why you felt the time was right uh, to write this particular book now. Well, Georgine, it's like I never thought I would do a book on suicide. It was just not on my radar until I began to see what's going on. Mm. And since the, the last two years, we've seen a, well, a frightening increase in suicide attempts and suicides. Um, I looked at the 12 to 17-year-old uh, age range, and we uh, know that it is now the number two um, killer is suicide, uh, the reason for death. And that's uh, just to say that is, is sounds strange. 12 to 17, uh, suicide is the second leading cause mm. of death. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one wonders what role social media plays. You've actually written on the subject. Can you tell us if that plays a significant role uh, or an outsized role in uh, suicide contemplation and ultimately suicide among this young age group? Well, what we know is that it's a huge influence. We know anytime you have uh, the amount of social media that kids are immersed in, and, and you know, it kind of digitizes the brain, puts you in a, a, a daze, and, and people are what, uh, doom scrolling now, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, and, and we're being filled with so much negative. That's what happens with the social media. Kids are um, either uh, comparing themselves feeling cyber-bullied. It's not a real pleasant world to spend much time in. Uh, We know, and there's been some good studies that have shown, if you're already struggling with some depression and anxiety, uh, social media will just increase it. So um, this is what's happening with our kids. Last year, we had the highest academic failure rate ever. Mm. So the uh, online learning, the virtual learning, did not work for our kids. So, and we have a generation, and I'm making some generalities, but uh, where they feel um, apathy, hopelessness about the future. Uh, we have uh, addictions dropping to younger ages. I mean, if we even look at uh, pornography on the internet, age nine is the average age to exposure uh, to pornography on the internet. So, uh, what's happening? to our kids is of huge concern. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the statistics, and I made a brief reference to at least some of the statistics about suicide, they're staggering. Can you share some of them with us to put into perspective 
how serious this issue is and how those of us who care about those who struggle uh, need to recognize that we can play some role in uh, in helping those who struggle. We really can. And it's something that we we don't need to shy away from as awkward as having a conversation around suicide is. That's really what we need to do. If you have somebody in your life that you're concerned about, uh, you know, one of the myths is, well, if I use the word suicide, they will, um, you know, give them ideas. And actually the opposite's true. You may be opening a door of opportunity for uh, discussion with a person that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, saying to a person, I love and care about you, and, you know, you've had some struggles here. Have you ever thought about harming yourself or killing yourself? Getting Opening up that conversation could be a lifesaver as a starting point. Well, in fact, your book is dedicated to those who struggle, uh, but also to those who care about them, giving real clear direction on what can I do. And I think that's one of the, the largest frustrations that onlookers have. Is there anything I can do? Should I address it head on? And your book provides some very practical, thoughtful ways uh, that we can express our concern in a way that's constructive. And we can do that. First of all, um, if a person's really struggling, and you know, we've been, we've all kind of come through the last two years, I think it'd be fair to say chronic stress. It hasn't gone away. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of distrust out there. Um, who or what do I believe? People are probably oversaturating themselves with news and information, and, and the confusion is at all-time high. So we have a lot of fear and anxiety, plus we have uh, an unknown future. The future seems uh, unknown, and people are very anxious. When we live with that state for a while, um, it's for some, it's just pushing them over to this despair. And to have despair means I feel hopeless, I feel helpless, and you start to have really irrational thinking. And so uh, when we have irrational thinking, our judgment's poor, we're more impulsive, and that's part of what happens. So let's look at, is there addiction? Is there something we need to do to help with the anxieties? Um, But we want to keep people off of the edge of despair. You, uh, in your practice, as well as in the book, really emphasize the notion of hope. And you uh, reference the scripture in Jeremiah that's familiar to many of us. How important is hope in uh, trying to communicate with or understand a friend or family member who's struggling with thoughts of ending their life? When I think about hope, for me, that comes when we, um, there's some faith required, but it also comes when we put together a plan and a plan of hope. And so when you're in this mode and your thinking's not clear and you feel a lot of despair, you're not really able to see that or believe it or or really create a plan. So part of what I believe in hope, and uh, by the way, this is our 38th year uh, at the Center of Place of Hope. So I have seen, of course, we work with folks from all over the country. I have seen some situations on the, kind of the looking at it go, this looks pretty hopeless. But I have seen lives redeemed. I have people who have had a lot of suicide struggle, there is a turning point, or there can be, mm-hmm. where you go, you know what, that's really behind me, and I am so, so glad I'm alive. And so that's what I believe, but sometimes we really need help 
uh, because we're not thinking clearly. Um, we don't see that. And we need somebody to come alongside us and really begin to speak truth uh, to us. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on 38 years. That is considerable. Isn't that, it that is. sounds funny to say that, but it's true. <laughs> well, you opened the book talking about the intersection of four words that wouldn't necessarily be thought to go together. Tell us about how these four words are linked. Future, depression, hope, and suicide. Yes. Well, future. Uh, we do have a promise, and you you shared the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that says uh, that the Lord has promised us a future and a hope. Well, um, when we're in a deep, dark despair and, and depression, we don't see that hope. And you know, there's fear has a spiritual side to it. By the way, if we're full of fear and anxiety, it's like there's a fear stronghold, and uh, fear causes us to really um, think irrationally. Fear distorts reality. Anxiety distorts reality. So when I think about a future, okay, we've got to have a plan for anxiety. We've got to have a plan for depression. How am I going to manage these things that are really difficult uh, from a place of a future that has hope? And so when when I look at this, okay, hope really does come when I have a plan. And Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for the plans I have for you. Okay, plans. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, we may need a counselor. We may need to get some intensive type help to come alongside us and to really help us with that piece. Um, Sometimes if there's addiction in our life, uh, you know, that's bringing us down more. Uh, Maybe there's past trauma, uh, but maybe there's something that's happened that you feel like, man, I'm I'm defective or I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, able to see any different kind of future or any healing. So, and I just want to acknowledge there's many folks that feel like, oh, that's true. Um, this doesn't really apply to me because that's, that's kind of those lies we begin to tell ourselves. Yeah. yeah. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with award winning author and popular speaker, Dr. Gregory Jans. He equips readers in his latest book, So Much to Live For, to step up and speak out to those who may be considering suicide. In his new book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. And I think many of us have experienced the loss of a friend or loved one. We maybe had no idea they were contemplating suicide, and yet, uh, it occurred. And so this is such an important resource uh, to consider what role might I play in helping come alongside someone who is struggling. Now, statistically, some people are more vulnerable to suicide than others. Who are those people? And help us kind of understand um, sort of the background, if you will. Yes, there are some that are more vulnerable. And this uh, actually is, is broadening a bit since we've all walked through a couple years of pandemic and epidemics of various sorts. So uh, people are worn out. But there is this age group I mentioned of 12 to 17 we're particularly concerned about. But there's some other age groups. We know that for um, uh, teenage girls, um, their numbers have gone higher than we've ever seen Mm. before. So teenage girls. Uh, The other we want to look at is 
Uh, we're seeing more men, kind of 50 and above, uh, where suicide rates have really increased. Um, we're also seeing situations that sometimes are hard to determine. Maybe a person's struggling with addiction and there was an overdose. Uh, where we don't know, was, was this intentional or was it not? And so there, to have really, really accurate numbers, it's, it's kind of difficult to know. But um, there are those that are more vulnerable. Uh, past trauma, we know that childhood sexual abuse uh, could be in the picture for many. Uh, emotional abuse. Uh, I wrote a book on emotional abuse where we looked at what's the effects of emotional abuse. Um, so that would fit under the heading of trauma. Um, we know that there are those that um, may have a physical issue, maybe chronic pain, um, that they've struggled with for many years, and it seems like um, they lose because of that pain. It distorts reality, and they become more suicidal. We're Those are just a few of the groups. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with uh, Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. The first half of your book really focuses on understanding your loved one's desperate struggle, and that is one of our greatest challenges as an onlooker. Um, What are some common, or I should say, what are the warning signs that someone may be considering suicide? Are there things that we uh, can look to as um, a way of, of determining there may be a problem? Yes, um, and there are times where situations, they may be talking about suicide or talking about death or dropping us cues like, well, it'd be better off if I wasn't even around or uh, nobody loves me, nobody will miss me. And so they're kind of talking about it uh, in in code a little bit. So those are kind of cries for help. Um, If there's been significant loss in their life, maybe they've even academic failure for our kids or a loss of a relationship. You may see things like isolating, uh, disconnecting from normal uh, peer group activities. Um, We may see an increase in um, addiction. Sometimes online, uh, people will give us cues online about what they're thinking. Now, Suddenly, for a person to change their mood, it's like, you know, they're really, really struggling, and then all of a sudden, they seem everything seems great. You go, wow, what's going on there? Sometimes when a person has made a decision to end their life, they feel a relief. Hmm. And you'll start to notice, the start to, um, maybe it seems like they're giving things away, seeing affairs in order. Um, saying goodbye kind of to people and you begin to see this pattern. It's really not unusual for somebody who took their life to go, well, seemed like he was doing so well all of a sudden. So those are some of the things that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you write about that in So Much to Live For. Now, what are some of the common myths or misconceptions about suicide? Well, one of the biggest ones really is if I talk about it, um, I will uh, give them ideas. And the opposite is true. That's really where we open up an opportunity uh, to really hear from the person. Um, we also, and, and just 
listening to them. So often we want to, okay, if you just do this or uh, if you react to what they're saying, you're kidding me. You're thought about taking your life, and, and it feels like a judgment. Uh, we, they just need us to listen to them. And uh, so that's, you know, that's one of the myths. It's the biggest one. If I say anything, um, I may give them ideas. Um, you know, the, another one is, um, and this is one that comes up, well, if a person's had a lot of suicidal thoughts, uh, they're always going to stay that way. No. And so what we do is we tend to take, we tend to lessen, okay, it's just the way they are. They're never going to really do it. Um, and so we need to remember that one of the myths is somebody that may have suicidal thoughts does not stay that way, they don't, or they don't have to stay that way. The second part of your book um, focuses on those who have loved ones who are struggling, helping your loved one move beyond crisis and toward wellness, which is such a hopeful thought that a person who um, is thinking about or has contemplated, which is the same thing, or has attempted suicide um, can move past that to a more hopeful uh, future and toward wellness. Again, it's so encouraging I've had two friends commit suicide that came as a complete shock. And I have one Mm. now who has made reference to um, the possibility of ending uh, their life. So this is so important to give hope to the person who wants to help and to give them the resource to to be able to do that. Absolutely. And this is one of those um, books you go. You know, it, at first it made me go, this may be a hard book to buy because it's on suicide. Are you kidding me? Um, this is something that all of us need to have more education about. Like I said, uh, though we've dealt with situations through the years, I never knew or thought or had planned that I would ever do a book on this topic mm-hmm. until I saw the incredible need. And uh, now I'm just, I want to save lives. And each of us can do that, you know. So a person who feels suicidal, sometimes it's important just to be there. Ask questions, be with them. Uh, Don't worry about answers. It's not about trying to create answers. Um, Probably gently uh, helping them get to the right professional uh, help, um, making sure that they're safe. um, And, uh, you know, we don't, a person that's really suicidal, we don't leave them alone. Uh, but we want to make sure they get the right kind of help um, and stay their friends. Like, okay, so they went into this program and they're going to they're getting help, but stay their friend, follow up with them, be in relationship. Uh, don't let what they're struggling with scare you away. Yeah, I think one of the fears that uh, that we have as onlookers or family members and friends is that if we fail to prevent a suicide we will then take some responsibility for the outcome. Can you speak to that? Because I think that fear prevents some people from entering into the life of someone who's struggling. Yes. Um, A lot of times you go, well, what if I would have done something differently? Mm -hmm. Um, What if I could have really helped them? Or sometimes there is, I wish I would have. So those are all statements of regret. A lot of times, uh, we need to come to a place of understanding we we cannot control what another person does. We can offer help, hope, and resources and be there, but um, 
we need to remember, as difficult as it is, um, that people make their own decisions, and some of this is so sneaky, uh, planned, that that you you did do all you could with what information you had. Yeah. And that's, that's important to remember that. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap up our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Gregory Jans. He is the author most recently. Well, he's written lots of books, but today we're talking about his most recent book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Given the statistics that we're seeing today uh, prior to the pandemic and then through it, uh, this is such a helpful and hopeful book. Uh, the second half of the book focuses on uh, helping your loved one move beyond crisis and toward wellness, something that many of us just simply give up hope on. And I appreciate that that's a possibility. And again, you make reference to uh, the verse in Jeremiah that we we cling to um, in our best of times and the worst of times. Let's talk a little bit about how we can help a loved one uh, move beyond that crisis point where we may take a deep breath and think, well, my work here is done. Uh, but uh, the ultimate goal being uh, wellness. Yes, and that's where we're going to stay in relationship with them. Even if a person receives and receiving really good help, we don't just say, well, it's all, we're all out of the woods now. We're going to stay in, in relationship with them. Um, we're going to love and care about them. We're going to um, be there. We need to remember that this is a process of regaining strength a process of renewal, a process where whatever issues that push a person over to suicidal thinking, those issues do need to be resolved. And there is hope for our loved ones. And we've all been affected by this. You know, if it's not somebody in your family or a friend, you know, in our close circle of, of relationships, we probably know somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I was completely surprised to learn of, of two people that I had known, one I'd gone to church with, who uh, took their own life. And it, it was completely shocking and sobering. Uh, and it certainly made me think, um, could I have done something different uh, differently? Could I have said something? Was I just simply uh, oblivious to what was going on? And it, it, um, it can be a very painful thing to look back on. Yes, absolutely. One of the things um, that, oh, please go ahead. Oh, very painful. And there can be all those feelings of regret and there's feelings of uh, times anger or betrayal or they tricked me. So there's a lot of emotions wrapped into this. Yeah. Now, one of the things you emphasize in the book, and I so appreciate that as a caregiver, someone who is extending uh, themselves into the life of someone who is struggling, you really emphasize it's important to take care of oneself because it can be exhausting uh, to come alongside someone who is contemplating ending their life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we can grow quite weary because we mm-hmm. can feel very responsible. You know, it's like if I don't say the right thing, do the right thing, um, it can weigh very heavy where we just feel like we're so responsible for this person. And so when I say we've got to take care of ourselves, 
Uh, it's got to be a shared burden, by the way. And no, I know it sounds strange, but no person is is responsible for uh, saving another life. You're going to do all you possibly can. Um, but again, that person will make decisions at times that um, are outside of our control. And I, that's hard to say, but it's also very true. We need to remember to take care of ourselves. Uh, we're sharing the burden. Uh, we are, if we're living with somebody that's very depressed and potentially suicidal, we want to make sure we're getting them to the right kind of help. Mm-hmm. Um, some people need to actually, um, you know, more intense, intensive help to get them through this period of time. Um, things like where they could harm themselves with weapons or is this uh, pills or uh, things that could be easily accessible. Just kind of thinking through uh, what's in the environment uh, could be important. Yeah. Now, for those who are listening who are currently considering suicide, what do you say to that listener? I would say we've, we've got to give your life a little time. And what that looks like is, and maybe you feel like, oh, I already did, you don't understand. Um, we've got to get the time to get together the right kind of help. Uh, walking through this requires some outside assistance, but it's so important uh, that we get the right, the right team with, uh, and the right kind of help. Uh, that's why we do things in, in a team setting, because uh, we need to cover all the bases. And at first, you may feel like, no, there's not hope. You don't understand. Um, the pain is too deep. I have no other option. And that's, that's that despair talking. Uh, in a clear mind, you would be saying something different. But it's so overwhelming that I just want to acknowledge if you're struggling with it, it feels like there's not options. So allow us the time to create the right options for help. Um, I think that's the big issue is um, we feel so overwhelmed. We want to end things now, uh, but hang on. Uh, let's get the right read. This is what we do with our, our patients and clients every day. We want to put together the right plan, the right plan of hope. Now, where can our listeners connect with you online or can they? Well, find us at aplaceofhope.com, A place of hope.com and a copy of the uh, the book which i think should be in every church library and certainly in the homes of people who are concerned about friends and loved ones so much uh, to live for how can they acquire a copy you know that should be uh, your favorite uh, online retailer or hopefully in person as well so <laughs> so much to live for um, all your christian book retailers and all the traditional ones Well, Dr. Jans, I know this wasn't a book you had anticipated writing, but I'm grateful that you have taken the time to do so and to help those of us who care about others know how we can come alongside, be constructive, make sure that we we take care of ourselves in the process and do as much as we can to encourage and and, um, consider hope in the midst of what can be a very challenging set of circumstances. Thank you so much. Oh, yes, it's so important. Let's save lives together. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Again, Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How the how to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. The book is published by Fleming Ravel. 
Uh, it's also, uh, you'll find that it Focus on the Family. It's a book that they're featuring as well, so you can check that out. want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilden for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.